This is an ABC podcast. If you're a tenant, there's no more common chat at the moment with mates than, hey, has your rent gone up? And there's no more dreaded email than the one from your real estate agent telling you, yep, it is going up. But as rents keep increasing and increasing, we're all asking, when's it going to stop? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast, and today we're getting into Australia's runaway rents because there's some new research on this. We're also going to ask the experts how much worse can it get. Also coming up, the Australian war history we know nothing about. First though. Hack. In one case, a player alleges the club asked him to ask his partner to terminate her pregnancy. On Triple J. Just a few days out from the AFL Grand Final, there's usually a lot of buzz and excitement around the game this time of year. But it's hard to be upbeat when you hear about this racism review into one AFL club, Hawthorne. The allegations in the review are disturbing, allegations that key figures at Hawthorne demanded the separation of young First Nations players from their partners, and as you just heard before, pressured one couple to terminate a pregnancy for the sake of a player's career. We're still finding out a lot more about this story, but I wanted to get the rundown. So with us is ABC Sports' Tracy Holmes. Hey, Trace, thanks so much for your time. What allegations have been made in this review? Well, there's a whole series of them, but I suppose the most damning and the ones that stick out and are really quite shocking. Uh, One of the players at Hawthorne alleges he was urged by coaches to encourage his partner to terminate a pregnancy uh, for the sake of his career. Other players have alleged that coaches coerced them to remove SIM cards so that they'd be cut off from their partners. They were bullied um, to relocate from their family homes and their support base and, you know, a a long string um, of other allegations. So where did the review come from? Was it something that was independent or Hawthorne did internally? Uh, Hawthorne commissioned this review uh, into how they treated First Nations players as an overall club perspective. And they did this because of um, allegations made by Cyril Rioli earlier this year when he actually, you know, just severed all ties with the club. He had made allegations that uh, he didn't like the way that he and his wife had been treated by the club president, Jeff Kennett. And, you know, he had some complaints to make. So that's when the club decided, OK, we'll, we'll do a review and we'll get to the bottom of this and just make sure there's no other things hiding in the closet. Um, Pretty much along the lines, I suppose, of the Collingwood Do Better report that was done into that club. I don't think anybody expected these sorts of uh, allegations to come out and these sorts of historical stories to the point where some of the First Nations players that were approached to be part of this said that they had relived their trauma by having to answer questions for the purpose of this review. Um, So the AFL Players Association is now offering a couple of them support because obviously it's an incredibly difficult time and they didn't really want to relive the trauma they'd gone through all over again. Yeah, you can imagine. And as you said, such a surprise to so many fans, the general public. What's Hawthorne had to say about this today. They've had a press conference. Their Vice President Peter Nankerville was speaking along with Justin Reeves, the CEO. Justin said that he pointed to a line that the AFL had used earlier in the day that Australia has a problem. 
with race relations and that this is part of uh, a national problem that needs to be dealt with. He said that he has spoken to First Nations players who are at the club now to make sure they feel culturally safe. And he said they do. But the priority for the club at the moment is the well-being of the unidentified, the anonymous players who had given their stories to this review. The thing is, as you mentioned before, Tracy, in recent years we've had these other disturbing allegations come to light involving other clubs, Like, and you mentioned Collingwood's Do Better Review. Are we hearing calls for systemic changes in the AFL? I think we've been hearing calls for that outside the AFL for some time. The AFL would argue internally that they have done much to engage with First Nations and the Indigenous community. They have teams of people that work there. They have committees that try to guarantee that these sorts of things don't happen. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've heard previously, you have this idea that it's historical events, you know, it belongs to an era past. In fact, what we're talking about is really quite recent. You know, we're talking about people uh, who were being coached by Alastair Clarkson, who'd been at the club from 2005 to 2021. Um, These are not things that are in the dark, distant past. These are things that have been happening now. So we've had Hawthorne, we've had Collingwood, we've had Adam Goods being booed out of the game. There comes a point, doesn't there, where I think the noise of the people outside of the AFL saying there is something systemically wrong, can we have a look at this right across the board, really needs to be answered. So what's going to happen now, do you think, Tracy? Because, like, it is all good for people in official roles to be shocked and concerned, but um, presumably there's going to be a lot of pressure from fans for action. Look, and I guess it depends which fans you speak to and, and what people are prepared to accept, even believe. We know that when we went through the, the darkest day in Australian sport with the Essendon Bombers, a very different story. But nonetheless, you could see how it just split the fan base. And, uh, you know, some people bought into it. Some people wanted change. Others didn't buy into it and said, no, this is just it's being manipulated and sold. And I think this is one of the big concerns. And sport has a problem with this, that people outside looking in think that there's a bit of manipulation um, in, in trying to manage the message a little too much rather than saying, okay, we're dealing with human beings here and how do we first deal with them to make things better to guarantee this doesn't happen again? I'm not an Indigenous person and I don't profess to speak on behalf of Indigenous people, but I am married to one. I have three children who identify as Indigenous. I know that there's this element of why do they have to keep reliving their trauma so that we can keep being re-shocked over and over and over again and very little seems to change. It's like we just wait for the next time this happens. And I think that is really concerning because it's easy for us to say, okay, let's have another review. Let's tick those boxes. Yep, this is what we're going to put in place. The policy looks great. But if the policy is not having an impact and you're asking Indigenous and First Nations people to come in and play a game that so many Australians love, but we're not protecting them, in fact, we're harming them, then something very different, a very different approach must be needed. They really are disturbing allegations and it casts a shadow over the grand final this weekend. I'm sure we'll be finding out a lot more in the days ahead. ABC Sports' Tracy Holmes, thanks so much for speaking with us on Hack. Thanks, David. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, if you want to read more on this, there's a lot to digest. You can find the full story on ABC News and Hack's posted the link on our Instagram. Hack. We paid our rent. 
You owe me $7,727. Yeah. Mm, the American dollars or real dollars? On Triple J. What are you forking out for rent each week? A quarter of your pay? A third? Maybe you just got hit with a massive hike. Or you'd prefer to be dealing with the rent increase because you can't even find a place to rent at all. We've been talking heaps about the rental crisis this year because we know that so many of you are going through it and it feels like things are getting worse and not much is happening to sort it out. How bad is it for you? The text line 0439757555. Well, the reason we're talking about it again today is because the ABC has just crunched a whole heap of data about just how out of control this situation's getting. We knew it was bad, but wait until you hear this. Ellie Grounds explains. People need to know what it's like in Australia right now. I'm three weeks out from being homeless. Not because we can't afford to pay rent, but because there's simply nothing available. This TikTok that was doing the rounds a couple months ago is pretty full on. But it's also a pretty accurate representation of the rental crisis happening across the country right now. The creator, Amy, has moved from Cairns in far north Queensland to stay with family in Brisbane, a 20-hour drive away, because she couldn't find a rental in her hometown. And she's not alone. Our data-savvy colleagues have crunched the numbers on Australia's low vacancy rates and high rental prices. And things are f- grim. My name is Inga Ting. I'm a data journalist at the ABC. Inga has analysed 20 years of rental asking prices from Property Portal Domain across nearly 4,000 suburbs. We found that the house asking rent price in 85% of the suburbs surveyed have hit record highs. And that figure itself is a record high in 20 years of data from the domain. That's a huge jump from just two years ago. In 2020, median advertised house rents got to a record high in 51% of suburbs. And Inga says it's actually in regional areas, not capital cities, where things have gotten the craziest. So the hardest hit areas are commuting towns that are within, say, one or two hours of the city so that people can still get to work. Coastal regions were massively popular and the so-called lifestyle towns, so Byron Bay, Sunshine Coast, that kind of thing. All of these areas have seen massive increases in rent. So to put that in context, nationwide, since the pandemic, rents have risen around 24% for house prices. And in some of these areas, they've risen more than 30 to 40%. The award for most cooked rental increases has gone to the northern part of the WA outback, where advertised house rents have gone up 44.3% since the start of the pandemic closely followed by the Gold Coast, where they've gone up 43.1%. Every single night before I go to bed, I have daily alert listings for every house in 40 postcodes, trying to see if anything has come up that's acceptable for me to live in. Uni student Mickey is 25 and lives on Yuggera land on the outskirts of Brisbane. We first spoke to her in April when she was looking for a place. And nothing's changed. Yeah, it's been 10 months and I still haven't got anywhere stable to live. She reckons she's averaging around two inspections a week. And she's not being picky about where she wants to live. I'm just wanting something that's within 45 minutes of my university. That's the only sort of requirement I have. So I'm looking north, south, east, west side. 
anywhere that has any sort of availability for someone like me. Mickey says one of the worst parts is not knowing why her rental applications keep getting rejected. Every single application I've put in that's been denied has just said there's been a volume of applicants. There's not necessarily anything wrong with you. We've just already picked a tenant. So it's disheartening. It takes such a toll on your mental health just constantly being told you're not good enough for this place you're not trustworthy enough you're not reliable enough you're not stable enough um, you're young we don't know if we can trust you in brisbane where mickey's looking the rental vacancy rate hit an all-time low last month the same in sydney and perth and it's probably about to get to a record low in melbourne soon too in inga's words so there's basically nowhere to go if you're lucky enough to be in a stable rental right now and your landlord hasn't increased your rent that is awesome. But Inga's got some bad news. You're probably not going to get away with paying your current rate forever. We looked at advertised rents, which really paint a picture of the state of the market for people going out to find a new lease. But the thing with advertised rents is that those rent prices will flow through to actual rent prices paid eventually. So your rent might be good and you might be on a safe lease. But at some point, the landlord is going to notice that properties around the corner are going for 50 bucks, 100 bucks more. And of course, they feel like they, they want to get in on the action. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that update and we're hearing from you on the text line. Pete in Newey says, do you think the rise of single occupant households has increased the tightening of the rental market? Is there a social trend impacting here? It's interesting. Somebody else says, if I was to rent a place close to work that isn't a renovated shipping container, it doesn't go below 60% of my income and that's without utility bills. Bernadette says rent isn't the only thing going up. I actually feel for landlords. Our mortgage has gone up nearly 600 a month so far this year. And look, yeah, it's a lose-lose situation for a lot of people, for renters and for landlords, but doesn't make the situation any easier for those who just don't have the money to pay their rent. And I want to talk about this a bit more, break it down. Uh, you know, with an expert, somebody who knows what the situation is like in Australia. So with me to chat is Joey Maloney. He's an economist at the Grattan Institute. Hey, Joey, thanks for jumping on Hack. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dad. You guys are constantly crunching the numbers and pouring over this kind of housing data. So it's not a surprise to you. But the long and short of it is things are getting worse, right? Yeah, that's 100% right. So the rental market is tightening right at the top. And like it was said in the intro, that happens at the front of the rental market in advertised rents, but eventually that's going to flow through to the stock of rents and we're going to see basically all renters suffering and spending a higher share of their income on rent. For so many years, there's been this huge focus on the big cities, but the data is showing that the situation is often so, so much worse in the regions. Like we just heard that, someone having to move from Cairns to Brisbane because they couldn't find a place in Cairns. Why is it so bad in the regions? Yeah, it's a great question and it is interesting. It's not something that we've observed heaps before. I think it it comes down to the pandemic and one of the pandemic's effects was kind of to dislocate the housing market. There was what I've heard described of neatly as a race for space. So people were locked down, they wanted more space to themselves and that kind of led to larger households dissolving and more people wanting their own space. And then the other thing that happened with the pandemic is we all started to do remote work. So a lot of people in the cities realised, I can do my job from somewhere else. It's a bit nice, a bit more serene. So we start to see people race for space to the country. 
And so I think when you look at the data from the regions, it's no surprise to me that it seems like the housing market is tightest in regional areas that are of particular attraction to, you know, bougie city folk. So places, you know, less than an hour's commute from the city that have some other sort of nice things going for them. That's where it's tightest. Someone on the text line says, I have a great deal with my landlords. They kept my rent the same as last year and that's really good. And we do hear stories of like really good landlords that support tenants and, you know, where that's possible, it's great to hear. Elise says, I feel terrible for landlords if only they had an asset they could sell to make money. Um, <laughs> sense a little bit of something in that one, Elise. And another person says, Airbnb's to blame. If you want to run a motel-style business model, short-term accommodation out of a house, you should pay commercial loan structure and commercial electricity, etc. A house is a house. Look, there's some interesting stuff there and we had the message before from someone being like, is it because households are, you know, are getting smaller and, and you sort of pointed to that, Joey, saying that things did change during the pandemic. The thing is, when house prices were skyrocketing, rents were skyrocketing, house prices are now cooling off, but rents are still skyrocketing. So is there any idea when renters are going to get some relief? Oh, it's a great question, and I think the answer is, I'm sorry to say, probably um, not in the short term, because fundamentally the rents are a function of the supply of rental houses and the demand for rental houses. What we've seen is like a surge in the demand for rental houses. What that's not going to be offset by in the short term is an increase in the supply, because it takes a long time to build houses, and there's a lot of constraints on building houses. You know, There's approval processes and all of that. So in the short term, I don't think we're going to see those aggregate numbers slow down too dramatically. But I think there are some there are some steps that governments should take in the meantime to ease the burden, particularly pay some extra income support through rent assistance because it's low-income renters that suffer the most when the rental market tightens like this. So just quickly, if you could do it in a minute, I'd love you, Joey, but what are some of the things that you know governments should be doing? So I think, like I hinted at before, an increase in rent assistance is critical. We've been saying this at the Grant Institute for a long time. Rent assistance has lost its real value over the 40 years as rents have gone up quicker than inflation. So we think it needs to be increased by at least 40%. And then it needs to change each year relative to the rents that low-income people actually pay because they, they have been going up quicker than inflation. So that will hopefully make things a bit easier for low-income renters. Then there's sort of a longer-term prospect of the government needs to build more social housing. Yeah. So like when, when a low-income renter loses their home or their landlord sells and they move out or whatever else, then they're entering a rental market that's tight where the rents are going to be maybe $200 more than what they used to pay. What you'd hope is a backstop for that is a healthy stock of public housing which that we, they can fall back to in worst case scenarios. Which we that don't we, have, yeah. And that's no. that's the big issue, Joey. And, um, you know, we've heard from experts before that's the issue. Um, and we appreciate your insight into this. Joey Maloney from the Grattan Institute, thanks for your time. Our pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Pack. A new documentary series called The Australian Wars challenges the popular belief that Indigenous Australians didn't resist British colonisation. On Triple J. Tens of thousands of deaths, ferocious fighting, incredible acts of bravery. It's part of the story of war. We learn about it in school, the world wars, Vietnam. You might even know a little bit about the civil war in the US. But there are a series of wars most of us know next to nothing about, and they happened right around us. 
The frontier wars played out over more than a century, fighting between Indigenous Australians and European settlers. Well, now a film is investigating what happened, who was involved, and why this enormous part of our story has been effectively deleted from history. The series is called The Australian Wars. It's directed by Rachel Perkins. And she's with us now. G'day, Rachel. Thanks for coming on Hack. Really happy to be with you, Dave. At the beginning of this film, you visit the Australian War Memorial and you're wondering why a country like Australia that's obsessed with remembering war, honouring people killed in war, reflecting on war, why Australia doesn't truly recognise our biggest conflict between colonial settlers and Indigenous Australians. Firstly, how big were these wars? How long did they go for and how many people died? Well, we'll never know how many people died and this is one of the complexities around these sorts of warfare uh, or wars. People call them often colonial wars defined by a period where an occupying power is coming in to often First Nations territory so whether it be Canada or the US or, you know, Africa or wherever, they often have some of the same defining features. And, and, and some of those features are that they're, they're sort of messy, they're happening on frontiers, you know, in areas where colonisers are coming in and First Nations people is their country. And so they're, they're sort of very hard to define. They shift over time. Sometimes they're peaceful. Sometimes there's conflict. People change allegiances. You know, there's no body count. Uh, it, so it, it's it's a different sort of warfare. So one that's hard to define and perhaps that's why we haven't really, well, perhaps that's one of the reasons why we haven't really come to terms with it and maybe not even given it the dignity of war. And, I mean, Aboriginal fighters were really feared adversaries to the settlers, right, like very fierce fighters. Yet when you go to the records, that's what you find in the newspapers and personal letters and and people are rightly terrorised. There are, you know, particularly a lot of convicts were sent out on the frontier, you know, where the landholders would be back in, say, Hobart or Sydney, you know, and have these big tracts of land. They'd send out shepherds, often unarmed, into the interior alone. You know, these, these young men would come from Britain or the UK and, terrified for their lives, rightly so, and many lost their lives. And I think one of the big myths that we have in Australia is that Aboriginal people didn't fight back. But the records, you know, there's so much rich material in the records that show that Aboriginal people were fierce adversaries and, in fact, so fierce that the British colonial governments and later our state governments had to upscale their military response because the resistance was so strong a lot of what happened was recorded, like it was reported on or noted in official documents. At one point, I heard that half the colony's annual budget was being spent on fighting First Nations people. Like, there's a lot of documentation out there. Were you surprised by how much evidence of what happened is out there? Partly yes and no. I think this is the weird contradiction, right? Because settlers and colonisers and governors and um, policemen and everybody was calling it war at the time, and then, you know, and, and all sorts of things. They were calling it skirmishes, and but they were using the word war, war and warfare often, and they understood what the terms of the war were. They, you know, they would say, you know, the Europeans would say, we are coming into and occupying their land and it is a fight, it is a battle, and they are waging it against us, you know. 
So it was very well known what was going on. And then suddenly all this, it just gets this glaze as we head towards Federation, you know, in the 1890s towards 1901, where the new Australian nation comes out and is born as this gleaming, freely settled, perfect agricultural society. You know, suddenly, are we just going to forget all of that? stuff. There's this, as someone described it, you know, this window has been closed on this history and and it's really only in the 1970s that you see the re-emergence of these records and this history. Rachel, you interview someone in the film, I think it's Professor Marcia Langton, and she says Aboriginal people carry the burden of knowing what happened. They know the stories. It's often non-Indigenous people who don't know or fully appreciate what happened. There is this thought that this is Aboriginal history, this part of Australia's past. But you make the point, this is all of Australia's history. And when we disregard it, we're not only forgetting all of the First Nations people who died, we're forgetting all of the settlers who died as well. Yeah, well, look, something that I was amazed about was that the number of, say, you know, settlers, colonists, white people, however you want to describe it, um, who died in Tasmania. So in a very short period of time, I think it's in five years from, say, 1825 to 1830, almost 300 white people are killed. Now imagine if 300 white people were killed, you know, in Sydney, <laughs> you know, in a five-year period by some sort of guerrilla force. I mean, it would be outraged. Like the numbers are big, you know, and uh, the numbers are big in Queensland, more than a 1,000 people. And I mean, it, of course it's not the figures that you have in the Great War. But in Queensland, you know, it's estimated that perhaps, and we'll never know for sure, you know, we can't be certain because of the complex way that this warfare is carried out, but perhaps 70,000 Aboriginal people are killed by the native police. So, you know, it's not insignificant. It's, It's a long period of violence. A lot of people's lives were lost in the process. There's a lot of sexual violence. There's a lot of slavery. It's a it's a pretty violent past. But, you know, it's part of our history. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with filmmaker Rachel Perkins about her new film, The Australian Wars. I guess another important thing to remember is that First Nations people have passed on these stories of what happened through oral history. And over the years... A lot of that's been dismissed by some people, but I found the interesting part of this was that scientific research is now backing up and supporting a lot of history, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. People have tried to deny this warfare happened and there's a certain agenda behind that, which really, when you look at the number of people who actively deny this, it's so small. Like, (laughs) it's very hard to find a reputable historian in Australia that does not agree that this was warfare on a on a large and uh, scale. But there are occasional deniers, right? A very small number of them. And often they will say, well, that's just, you know, those stories change because they're oral history and they're passed down. And there is an element of truth to that, of course. But yes, we have cases where now the scientific community is trying to do what they can to support these um, histories coming to the fore. So they're using, you know, archaeological, forensic dating and analysis of bone fragments, um, all sorts of different research processes, you know, ground penetration systems to look at massacre sites, for example, um, to support the stories that have been handed down by eyewitnesses who are survivors to the violence. I mean, 
why we need to bend over backwards to justify the fact that these things happen, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's um, <laughs> there are people doing this work to assist. Rach, going forward in the years ahead, how would you like to see us remember these Australian wars? Well, look, I have only personal views and I think others have a variety of views about this. I have a great deal of respect for the Australian War Memorial and what it represents because it represents Australian uh, men and women who gave their lives to serve their country. And that is a extremely important, an incredible position in Australia's narrative or life. I think that that is the fitting place that the Australian wars should be acknowledged. That's just my view. I think that there should be recognition at sites across the country where violent things happened in the same way that we built a $100 million museum in France (laughs) to the war there. I think in the places where conflict happened, there should be acknowledgement. And I think that it should be taught in schools about the conflict that happened in in all parts of this country. You know, I think in, in, in some years' time we'll look back and we'll go, I can't believe we didn't learn that. I can't believe we didn't recognise that. I can't believe that we denied that for so long. You know, I think the time is coming. It's It's changed. It's upon us. It's with us. We're in the moment now where we're going to see a change. That is a good thing <laughs> at last. Well, look, it's an incredible film, a really important record, and we appreciate you not only making it but speaking to us about it. Rachel Perkins, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, and I really um, encourage, you know, listeners, I'm an avid Triple J fan, <laughs> and um, I hope that your listeners enjoy enjoy this series. It, we made it with a lot of um, care and intention to share it for all of us to move forward. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Rachel Perkins there. And The Australian War is a three-part series. It premieres tonight on SBS and NITV. It's so good. I binged the whole thing in one go. It's really, really interesting. I highly recommend it. And we've got some thoughts coming through. Emily says, I'm a history teacher and I spend two weeks teaching this history every year. It's the most powerful teaching I do in a year. And Chris says, I wanted to learn Australian history but could only choose between modern 20th century or ancient Roman history. Hack on Triple J. A huge thanks to Australian filmmaker Rachel Perkins. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. We'll be away tomorrow for the National Public Holiday, but we'll be back Friday with The Shake-Up. I'll catch you then.